This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential and thank you so much for joining me today for a very interesting show. So a while back, actor Francis McDormand optioned the book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. It's a stunning work of nonfiction by my guest this week, journalist Jessica Bruder. Now, Nomadland has been adapted to a movie directed by Chloe Zhao, starring McDormand, and a host of real people that Jessica met during her reporting. And the film is a major Oscar frontrunner this year. The book and the movie explore the subculture of older American workers, many priced out of their middle-class life and greatly affected by the recession. They're living in their RVs, trucks, campers, and traveling across the country like nomads, looking for temporary employment and building a community together. Columbia Journalism School professor Jessica Bruder is a journalist and author who reports on subcultures and social issues. She's written for the Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, and many more. For her book Nomadland, she spent months living in her van, following Americans who have given up traditional housing, many living in their vehicles ingeniously designed for more storage and solar power energy. Jessica learned about the community, a community built on sharing and helping. She visited the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, an annual gathering for van dwellers, and worked at many of the physically difficult temporary jobs that they take on the road, at Amazon, beet harvesting, as well as camp hosting. Jessica's project spanned three years and 15,000 miles of driving from coast to coast. And she introduced us in the book and now in the movie to some incredible people from the community like Linda May and Swanky, who in spite of never acting, give incredible performances in the film. Here is a little bit of the trailer for Nomadland. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I and they sometimes call you nomads. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Make the hole bigger. 
I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's going to come right through the glass. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. Now, I talked to journalist and author Jessica Bruder just a few hours after the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris. So I started asking Jessica if she felt President Biden's speech has resonated across America, an America that she has spent so much time traveling. Yeah, I think the hopeful tone was fantastic. I think we need that right now. I mean, between everything, including the pandemic and climate despair and just so many problems that we've gone backwards on through the last administration, uh, hearing something that appealed to forward momentum and unity uh, was very, very appealing. Um, I hope we can get to the unity part. I am a little concerned. We all know that the 74 million people who voted for Trump aren't going away and uh, may not have seen hope in the unity idea as much as some of us would like to. Um, but yeah, it just it, it just felt so good to turn a page on the past four years, even though we have so many knots to untangle as a nation right now and, and so many issues, just knowing that that man, the Mango Mussolini, as a friend calls him, is out of the White House is just, it was a good day. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it felt like like we could breathe for a little bit. Now it's back to work, but it really was a... Yeah system cleansing um, of a day yesterday. But getting to your book, so your journalistic journey with Nomadland really started with you looking into labor and Amazon. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I write a lot about labor and a lot about subcultures. And one of the things that's interesting to me with labor is how, you know, with the decline of manufacturing and the rise of digital culture, just how that impacts labor and how that impacts things like traditional organizing, all that stuff. Um, so I tended to read pretty widely in that space. And that was when I came across a story that ran in Mother Jones by the fantastic Mac McClelland. And she was in an Amazon warehouse. And I, gosh, I think it was just one paragraph where somebody who was working there told her, I'm an RVer. We work here because we can't afford to retire. And there's a whole program for people like us. And it was one of those moments where, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure I eventually read the end of the article. For me, I just, I wanted to hit pause and zoom in because I just, I just wanted to see that face. I wanted to see that person. Um, I found it so startling, perhaps naively. I'd thought of most RVers as pensioners who are, you know, going across the country to just, you know, see the sites. Uh, those people are still there, of course. Uh, but I just hadn't realized that this, the subculture was active and, and as I learned growing. So for me, Googling that program, learning more about Camper Force, which is Amazon's program, and then realizing that I was actually part of a gigantic network of jobs, everything from campground hosting to being ground crew at the annual sugar beet harvest. I mean, there are just so many jobs uh, looking for what they call work campers, the sort of plug and play labor. A lot of people who are at or near retirement age just traveling the country on doing this kind of seasonal work. So this group of people that you came across, they're sort of living in their cars. It's a what you call a disposable group. They're priced out of the middle class. Can you tell me a little bit about? Yeah, I mean, uh, it varied. I met people with all levels of educational attainment. One guy had been the former VP of uh, McDonald's R&D, like global McDonald's, and had lost everything in 2008. 
uh, when his savings basically evaporated. Other people had been dealing with the fact that American retirement finance is a mess. Uh, in the wake of the New Deal, it was supposed to be what they called a three-legged stool. It was supposed to be your pension and your savings uh, and Social Security. And so many people's savings have been obliterated. And, you know, so there's Social Security, but we kind of have that Social Security pogo stick. So a lot of people are trying to hop along, but uh, it's not working so well. Other people are caught up between the fact that wages are flat and the cost of shelter just keeps going up. Um, I know a lot of the states have brought in a higher minimum wage, but it, it's always worth reminding people that at the federal level, minimum wage is still just $7.25. Right. Uh, and the cost of housing just keeps going up. So a lot of people are getting trapped in those gaps. Yeah, so there are difficult choices that people have had to make um, in terms of traditional housing is one. What is life like in this community? Can you describe it? Yeah, a lot of the people I met were living in vans or uh, late model RVs. Uh, I did meet a couple people who are living out of Priuses, which was absolutely amazing. I mean, talk about talk about minimalism. Um, yeah. <laughs> one guy made me a, gosh, somebody had given him a tiny pizza oven and he made me the best pizza I think I've ever had on his passenger seat. It was kind of nuts. Um, so yeah, there's a community and that's, and that's the upside of this is uh, just the fact that this could be a tremendously isolating experience for somebody who didn't expect to be nomadic, who expected to live in what they call a traditional sticks and bricks. But so many of the people are finding each other through the internet, through online forums, through annual events like the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. Uh, and there's a really lively community, people who will help each other if somebody gets in a jam, people who will tell each other good places to camp. Um, so more and more, um, there's this communal feeling and also just the sense that something is broken in American mainstream and just that for a lot of people, this was a way out. Seems to be more women than men that are sort of in this situation. Is, is that correct? You know, I wish I could t tell you uh, definitively. When I was out there, I saw a bit more women. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can tell you why. So I don't know, again, I don't know overall, there's no census, there's no demographer studying this population. I wish there were, it would be enlightening. Um, but women, as we know, there's still this gender pay gap. Women have lower lifetime earnings than men. Uh, many times women do the unpaid labor of caregiving. So they're outside the workforce for a while. So, you know, they miss out on savings and they miss out on social security eventually, a big chunk of it. And a lot of the people I met, a lot of the women are of a generation where, you know, back in the day in the 60s, you could have a full-time single income coming into your household and you could raise kids on that. And now that's a recipe for poverty. So a lot of people weren't raised with this idea that, you know, you're going to get a job, you'll do this, you'll do that. It was really, for a lot of these women, they grew up in an era where they were expected to tend the home front. So, um, yeah, a lot of people got a really raw deal. Uh, they're mm -hmm. making the best of it, but there are definitely a lot of women out there. Yeah, and it was powerful to read in your book how intense, I mean, physically, the jobs, the temporary seasonal labor was for them, particularly because this is an older group of people, many in their 70s. So what was work like at Amazon and for some of the people that you followed? Yeah, so when I, f I first started speaking with people, you know, I was talking to a guy in his 70s who told me how he walked about 15 miles a day on a concrete floor. I mean, these are jobs that are difficult for older bodies. 
Uh, now, in many of the warehouses, uh, that work of walking and kind of pushing a cart around has changed a bit because a lot of people are standing at stations and robots are shuttling the merchandise around. But, you know, there's still a lot of squatting and reaching and it's, it's physical work. So for a lot of people who are older, uh, that's a real challenge. I met an older gentleman who had worked as a mechanic in copper mines his whole life and his knees were shot and I just didn't know how he was doing it. Um, uh, camp hosting, which sounds like a whole lot of fun and, you know, yay, who wouldn't want to hang out on a campground and get paid? Um, that's a challenging job too. Often you find yourself babysitting rowdy campers, mm -hmm. hauling, you know, cleaning out fire pits and hauling big, big bags of that debris around. I know two people who um, broke a rib on the job who are older because, you know, you're constantly kind of dragging stuff around. I think at least one of those had to do with a dumpster related accident. So yeah, a lot of these jobs, they're, they're not easy. What about unionizing, for, for example, for those working at Amazon? Was that something you care about? People discussing or? Um, it's funny, before I got to the warehouse in Texas, a couple people who were there told me that there were union organizers in the parking lot and that management had been uh, trying to scare the workers into not talking to them, uh, saying things like, uh, you know, if you sign up with them, they'll track you, you're in a database, just kind of all this stuff. Um, but those uh, union organizers were not targeting a mobile population. Most of the people I met who are doing these jobs know how difficult the market is for older people. Ageism is real. Um, and their predominant attitude was that they were so grateful to have the work and um, that was about it. And because they're often just on the job for, you know, a couple of few months max, mm -hmm. you don't really have people in place long enough to organize. Um, and how were you reporting during these many months that you were out? You, what was your house like, so to speak? Yeah, I was in a 1996 GMC Vandura rally. Uh, that had already be been converted. It had a mini fridge. I think I had to replace that. Um, it had couch in the back that kind of folded out into a bed and a pop-up. And um, that was neat. I mean, it had a lot of hiccups because it's old. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would have actually loved to do a build out on my own because there's a huge DIY do-it-yourself component to this you know, culture. And I like building, but when I found out I was able to do the book project, I really just had to get on the road as quickly as I could. So, and I named my Van Halen because I'm just a dork and there are lots of puns in the Van subculture. Yeah, it seems like a very, very funny culture that you really have to get into to sort of understand the in-joke, so to speak, right? Yeah, there are a lot of dad jokes too, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> tell, me a, tell me a few. <laughs> oh, just, just, you know, naming the Vans, like Van Gogh, referring to people as Van Ali, uh, stuff like that. <laughs> At one point, I joked that the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, a big get-together, was going to turn into Burning Van, and now they actually burn a wooden van at the end. So <laughs> you've got to really be careful what you joke about. Now, several of the people that you follow, the sort of narrative backbone of, of your reporting, they're actually in the new movie. Tell me about Linda. Who, who is she? Yeah, Linda May, her story really formed the narrative spine of the book. She was somebody I met early on when I was writing a Harper's article that turned into the book. And when I met Linda, she had just gotten out on the road. 
she had been living in a small trailer. She had worked all her life. She'd been everything from a cocktail waitress to uh, a flooring store owner to uh, you name it. She'd done it. She, she'd done general contractor stuff. She'd also, you know, taken care of her mother when her mom was terminally ill and was a single mother to two daughters. So Linda had had uh, a very varied life, but she never did a job that earned a pension. And she went and looked up her social security one day. And mm -hmm. uh, gosh, I believe when I met Linda, she was probably in her early 60s. And sh she realized that when she retired, she was going to get about $500 a month. The place she was renting was $600 a month. She didn't know what to do. She didn't want to spend the whole rest of her life kind of on this wage treadmill. And she decided that it was time to give up sticks and bricks because she went online and found a website, uh, Cheap RV Living. And on the front page, it talked about how you could get on the road and live for $500 a month. So that was how her journey started. Uh, by the time I met her, she had done campground hosting, she had worked at Amazon and she was uh, getting to know her community for the first time. She was at that event, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, uh, which I just ended up at. Somebody I had met at Amazon said, hey, you want to come to this thing? And I said, sure. And, you know, this whole world opened up, incredible mutual aid and learning from each other. And that was pretty neat. So that's where I met Linda. Yeah. And if I, if she'd known that I was going to stalk her for three years, <laughs> but if I'd known, I think we both would have fallen over. But she was a wonderful person to document. And I think part of it is Linda doesn't turn it on for the reporter. Mm -hmm. uh, she is who she is, whether I'm interviewing her or she's talking to a sales clerk or Linda's Linda. And I think that's one of the reasons she was so great on screen. I mean, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a casting expert, but I just know that her unselfconscious nature uh, just made her really wonderful for me to be around. One of the things I read about the movie is that Frances McDormand, who plays a sort of made-up character named Fern, she, but Frances McDormand herself says that as a 50th birthday present for herself, she bought an RV because she was attracted to that, what you were saying before, romantic idea of traveling the country and traveling around. And then doing this and reading your, she realized that it really not a romantic idea behind the sort of modern nomadic living. Um, what do people like Linda and others think about the ones that are out there traveling in their very expensive rigs? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the people I met bear people ill will if they have pensions or more expensive rigs. I just think it's a shame because uh, there is class hierarchy among people who are out on the road. I remember one person, Swanky, who's in the film, telling me about how she was at a campfire with a bunch of people who had fancy new RVs. And when they asked her what she lived in and she pointed to her van, they apparently got up and walked away from their own campfire. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So there, there is some, there is some snobbery out there. And so if you get sick, if you need eyeglasses, anything like that, I'm wondering how does healthcare look for this nomadic community? Yeah, I mean, some people were able to get Obamacare. Some people didn't want to pay in because they figured that their odds of staying healthy were good and that they, even though it was maybe a nominal sum, they didn't want to do it. I knew people who were um, in a financial bracket that was low enough that they actually were not obligated to do that. So I know people who ended up relying on charity care in different towns. When it comes to dental and eye, uh, 
I stuff ophthalmology, a lot of them go down to uh, to Mexico. The town that I visited was called Los Algodones. Uh, people call it the Molar City. It has maybe, gosh, 400 dentists in a few square blocks, and people can get right, cut rate uh, dental work, also pharmaceuticals, eyeglasses. So a lot of people make pilgrimages down there, um, this kind of unglamorous version of medical tourism. After doing this for the long time that you did it, did it change how did, did it change your thinking about how you wanted to live and how you how do you think of life and, and what's important and not important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw people really building these amazing communities, and I think it, it definitely uh, made me think about that as somebody who tends to be a little bit of just kind of run around rootless and you know, what does it mean to be surrounded in that kind of non blood family? It definitely gave me a taste for the road, um, which during the pandemic, I haven't been able to do that much with. Um, but yeah, and I'm still in touch with a lot of people and continue to learn from them. And uh, that's a pretty neat opportunity to have. So you started this really before the Trump era. Do you think that there's been changes to this community, to this subculture during these past four years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it continues to grow. I think a lot of people who read the book assume that some of it must have happened during the Trump era or be you know, related to it in some way. And the bottom line is a lot of the people I met who uh, had found that you know, they felt really the only viable option was hitting the road, a lot of them were impacted by forces that have been going on for so long in our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the gap between wage and productivity, just so much stuff going on. So I remember right after the election, uh, lots of people asking me, you know, are these the quote unquote angry white people who voted for Trump? And they seemed kind of disappointed when I told them, you know, look, this crowd is internally diverse. Like a lot of people, first of all, can't vote because they have fake addresses or mail forwarding and they're probably not near the polls in those states uh, at the time of the election. And of those who could vote, the one person who was talking about it a lot was a woman who voted for Hillary. But it seems to be a, a largely white community. Yeah, and it's, I think it is starting to diversify now. Um, it was really neat on the set. Uh, there was, I, I spent quite a bit of time with Denny, who's black and was in her van, which she called paint because it takes her where she ain't. And we talked about <laughs> it. And, you know, I mean, when you think about how many Black people were shot by police, unarmed black motorists were shot by police, like around the time I was reporting this stuff and, you know, the brutality that continues. It's not surprising that you don't see more people of color on the roads. I know people who are, uh, you know, actively out there trying to diversify it. Denny wanted people to know that, you can, you know, you can do this. You can do this as a person of color. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's, it's if you're down in Arizona near the border, Latinos get harassed. You know, there's just all sorts of obstacles and people don't typically think of white privilege when it comes to something like living out of a vehicle, but it's definitely a factor. What are some of the security issues that they have to think about in this community living out of a vehicle? Yeah, well, everything you've got is in one place. Um, so, you know, if, if something happens to the vehicle or if it burns, like you need to be able to get your important stuff and your documents out quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, you really don't want your vehicle to get broken into. I really didn't hear about a lot of stuff like that. Um, I didn't hear a lot of people telling me they've been victims of crime. Uh, honestly, a lot of people just feel like they are kind of 
hiding out a bit, particularly when they're in urban areas rather than out on public land in the desert, uh, and just felt like the biggest issue was kind of not raising the ire of local officials and often just not wanting to be noticed. Like where to park and things like that. Where to park and how to park. Um, mm -hmm. How to park in a way where uh, it's not obvious that you're sleeping in your vehicle, uh, that you don't you know, raise suspicions or attention from the neighbors, all that stuff. What would you do to not make it look like you're sleeping in your vehicle? One bit of advice that goes around is wherever you sleep, you should just be sleeping there. You shouldn't be brushing your teeth there. You shouldn't be puttering around there. You should basically just park and sleep and leave early in the morning. Um, and that way you don't draw attention to the vehicle. People don't see that there's somebody inside it and you're less likely to get hassled. Now, looking forward into the Biden presidency, we're in the midst of a huge pandemic, you know, an economic crisis. How do you think things are going to be? Will be, there be more people having to live like this or, or choosing to live like this? Or what are your thoughts on the future? Yeah, I mean, one of my biggest concerns uh, is the, po the potential for a wave of evictions. Uh -huh. uh, now, I know Biden has a plan in terms of, uh, you know, getting federal funds for rent forgiveness and moving the election moratorium, I mean, sorry, not the election, uh, moving uh, the eviction moratorium uh, and kind of kicking the can down the road. But I'm not confident that there won't be people falling through the cracks of that because there are so many people who are so behind and, you know, there's not an easy answer for it. We, we don't know when the jobs are going to come back. We don't know when people will be able to have the income where they're going to be paying rent again, uh, which is bad for landlords too. So if we end up with a lot of people who are dispossessed and they have vehicles, they'll probably be living out of them. So I think we could see a flood of people. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the best solution right now to avoid the eviction wave altogether is, but I, I think it's definitely, uh, it's, it's pretty important. Do you think that this will change the community as is? Yeah, I mean, for as long as I've been following the community, even when it was smaller, uh, there were people who were worried about other people kind of finding out and getting in on this because they felt like they'd found a way to kind of hack the system. And if, if the ecosystem was overburdened, that it would be harder for people to do it. It would be harder to hide in plain sight when a whole bunch of other people are doing it too. So um, again, I, I can't predict the future. I don't know what'll happen, but I know people have always been concerned about uh, how many people the subculture can support. And particularly in a time when so many towns are criminalizing houselessness and you know, sleeping in vehicles and you know, just really restricting the use of public space. Well, with between your book and the movie, there will of course be more focus on this culture. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's been, it's funny, when I started writing and documenting it, we didn't see as much of it in the news, whether it's the RVs for people who are working in, you know, Palo Alto, but can't afford to live there, or, you know, just driving down the street, you see more than you did before. So I think people are very much aware of it already. And I hope that what it will do is act as an empathy vector, because I still know that there are people out there because they email me who used to see somebody in a van and just, you know, all the stigma would pop up. And some people have actually written to me and now and said, now when I see somebody 
doing that, I think, what's that person's story rather than jumping to all sorts of conclusions. So for me, that's pretty rewarding. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hope I hope the film will do that too, make people think more about individuals and their stories rather than lumping people together and making assumptions that are unfounded. So it must have been exciting to see your work, you know, was optioned by Frances McDormand to become a powerful film. But were you ever worried about sort of Hollywood taking over this work of journalism? I had to let go, right? I mean, that, that's something yeah. that, that happens. I had to let go. That's and so hard. <laughs> it's, really, it's really hard. I mean, maybe I sound sanguine about it now, but of course it's hard. You want to you wanna know that uh, people are doing justice to the story and to the people in it. And, you know, what I had to rely on was, you know, looking at Chloe Zhao's earlier work, uh, knowing what I know about Francis, uh, and saying, you know, if anybody's going to do it, I think this will be the team to do it. And, you know, one of the things I did a lot was make introductions. So, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of people from the book are in the film. We've got Swanky, Linda May, Bob, some other people. Gosh, um, there's a person in the first and final scene who I met on a reporting trip maybe back in 2011 in uh, the Nevada town of Empire. So again, just lots of people and you want to feel like you're introducing them to something that's good, right? Not, not right. that you're bringing chaos into their lives or something. And the cool thing was, even as the project was going along, people who are in the film would call me and tell me how it was going. And it, it just really seemed like it was working and that they were being listened to, which is interesting because there's a degree of improvisation that goes into a film like this. and you know, Chloe and her team are out there hearing people's stories and parts of them are getting woven in. So uh, that was really an amazing thing to see. And seeing people on the big screen getting honored and validated uh, for their stories in, in a forum that may be new to them was incredibly exciting. Going to the premiere and seeing them up on stage doing the Q&A yeah, and Chloe was really neat. And, you know, we're all there and in LA and ash is falling from the sky and people are flashing their lights and honking their horns instead of clapping and it was a very bizarre like I felt incredibly joyful and it also felt sort of like the apocalypse so okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a little Mad Max but it was really quite fantastic someone asked me the other day they were paid right yes yes that was fantastic too absolutely because journalists don't get to pay people and that was awesome Good, because that's what you really want yep. them to, because it seemed like hard work. Yeah, 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 no, and most people, you know, the people I talked to enjoyed the experience, they were compensated for it, uh, definitely seemed to think of it as an adventure. So why do you think this film um, resonates almost even more now? I think we're in a really reflective moment. Um, you know, everybody's stuck inside, everybody's starting to think a bit more deeply about the tension between this individualism, bootstrappy stuff, and, you know, more communitarian ideas. Uh, you know, we're having these issues still where people don't want to wear masks in certain areas because it's this whole go it alone, I don't need, I don't need the rest of you versus this idea that we all need to come together if we're going to do something like, you know, bring a pandemic under control. So I think uh, the fact that we all have wanderlust because we're cooped up, the fact that people are thinking also about inequality, about what it means to have a good life, I just think a lot of themes colliding right now uh, resonate with the experiences in the material, both in the book and the film. So right. I, I think 
yeah, I think we're in a moment. And also the sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you don't have bootstraps. Yeah, I mean, that was a phrase that was coined to connote an impossibility. Exactly. I mean, I mean, it is incredible. And and also, um, I feel that the story that you're telling is so, um, it's just a human story. It's not a political story. It's not, it's about people, you know, surviving and friendships. And we started by talking about unity here. It's here. It's where it is really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of George Orwell and he had a, a line talking about how Oddly, it's adversity that brings out some of the greatest traits in humanity, whether they're courage, loyalty, creativity, bravery, just just all sorts of things that work uh, in opposition to adversity. So while we wouldn't wish adversity on anybody, um, it really brings out often many of the things that are best about the human character. Thank you so much for the book and best of luck with, I can't wait for even more people to see your movie. Thank you so much for taking your time with me. Thank you so much for being interested, Christina. Science, science, science. Science, Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.